So today we're on week two of our superhero series, and uh, we are going to kind of kind of recount the story, a little bit of the story of Wonder Woman. And so we'll bring up this image here, and uh, this is this is a major part in the storyline where. Wonder Woman is leaving everything behind, everything that she knows. She's leaving her mother, Hippolyta, and she's heading off of the island, and she's heading for the sake of mankind, going against the grain of everyone on the island. She's going in to save mankind. It's a turning point in the story, and we are going to encounter someone from the Old Testament, a hero of the faith, really, that does something very, very similar to this. And so I'm going to draw your attention today to Hebrews 11. Uh, and this is, uh, this is uh, picking this up here, one to three. This is kind of our theme passage for this series. It says this, Now faith is confident in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And uh, to, to start, you know, this off here, to, uh, and I think you'll get the idea of where we're heading here with these next few pictures. It was a few years ago, uh, and uh, my family, uh, this, is, this is something that I wanted to do for a long time, and this is like w- the biggest class of ships in the, in the world, cruise ships in the world. Just huge, huge ships. I've always found it fascinating. And this, this ship, I mean, there's Harmony of the Seas and Allure of the Seas and Symphony of the Seas. They're basically twins, right, or triplets. They're all the same thing. But uh, this ship, it has a a water show outside with high dives. It has these flow riders. It has a park with trees growing in it. It it, it has a skating rink. I mean, it's, it's it's incredible to see this thing and to step on what is really almost like a city uh, and and thousands and thousands of people who are on this boat at the same time just kind of cruising around. This is the biggest thing that we have right now. And when you see it and when you step on it, your mind is blown, all right? And so if you know where I'm going here, we're going to look at... uh, another hero of the faith found in the book of Hebrews. And it's, uh, it's in 11 verse 7, and it reads like this. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. And so we're going we're gonna to look at Noah, this hero of the faith, this superhero of the Old Testament. It's referenced here for a reason in the book of Hebrews, this hall of faith, if you will. And uh, we're going to take a look at this character, this, this individual, uh, and, and break this down of what he did, who he was. And uh, we're going to start things off with his first appearance in the Bible. So we see Noah, he shows up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 5, 28 and 29. And here's what it says. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Referencing the early, te- the early days in the book of Genesis here, right? And the fall of man. Kind. And this is the, the first instance that we see him as he appears on the scene. Now, 
If we fast forward a little bit, we will see that there, there, the world is not good. Uh, he, he, he's, he's classified as a righteous man, all right? And we find that in the book of Hebrews, and we see why in the book of Genesis. And so he's classified as, as a righteous man. He lives in this bizarre world full of confusing kind of spiritual trends, uh, kooky kind of ideas, and, and terrible, evil things taking place, a world that is dark, that is, that is beyond redemption, we see this chilling words here, and uh, in, in chapter 6, verse, verse 5, it says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Chilling, chilling words here, and the world is so perverse that God, in, in great sorrow, great disappointment, he makes the decision to obliterate humanity and, and, and floods the entire world. I mean, everything that was is, is just gone, obliterates humanity. Now, we might ask ourselves, how does humanity get so dark? How does it get to this point where it's beyond redemption here? It's so deep down in, in bad things that we can't, can't fix it. Well, there's two main causes for this, two main ideas that swirl around in Genesis 4 to 6 that we can highlight, but I, I don't have time to fully explain all of this stuff here today, but I will highlight for you the two kind of main causes of why the world is so dark, and we'll take uh, the, these two looks. So Genesis, Genesis chapter 4 to 6, we, speak, we see spiritual entropy here. And we look at the descendants of Adam, and we find that for Cain, you know, Cain is, uh, his descendants, they grow very wicked. Now, Cain's descendants, they're great city builders. They're great at, at making civilization and all kinds of skills in that regard, as we trace his line down and see what he accomplished in his life. But they grow very, very wicked. The other thing that happens is that Seth we never hear reference of anything spiritually uh, good about them, right? And so the descendants of Seth, they grow weak. And so these descendants, wicked and, and weak here, and uh, that is important here. The other part of this that we see that how the world got so dark is something that we don't fully understand. And it is labeled as spiritual warfare, now, three main things that are taking place at this time. Again, can't really break this down because it takes a lot more time. And you can look into this if you want. But the spiritual warfare here, we have angelic perversion. And so something is going on here where the sons of God marry human wives. We don't understand fully what is happening, what's going on. But this is, this is clearly taking place in some way, shape, or form. The next thing is that human arrogance, God limits human lifespan to 100 120 years. Now, before this point, you saw people living to 900, 800 years, right? And so this is kind of whittled down, God, you know, this is when we see people like 20, 120 years, that's kind of lifespan at the max, right? And then the third thing that takes place uh, in, the, in the Bible, in the Genesis, you will see the Nephilim, the, the Nephilim violence. Now, the Nephilim are understood to be kind of like giants. They're, 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 they're giant living beings. We don't fully understand it, but they are given power in the size that they are. And these giant warriors, they actually, instead of for good, they use their power for evil. 
And so if you combine these two things, the spiritual warfare, the spiritual entropy, no one wants to get better. No one has a desire to grow closer to God. In fact, people do the exact opposite and, uh, and it's a dark place. It's, it's a scary place and it's a dark place. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this craziness and, and evil and sin, we see Genesis 6, 8. And it says this, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, we're not, we're not given much detail of why he's found favor in the eyes of the Lord, but I, I've listed three here, three main reasons that we, we find out he, he, he's like visible to God. God notices him. One is that he's a righteous man. He, he lives, he represents God, he's obedient, and I think you need to understand the obedience is a huge part in this, right? Number two, he's, he's blameless in his generation, and so he, not, not that he's perfect, right, but he is living a blameless life. And number three, Noah walks with God. And so God sees this, this man, God, God sees Noah in the midst of darkness. He sees this, this speck of light here in Noah. And there's some encouragement in this. See, do you, do you ever feel like you are lost in the crowd? Do you ever feel and wonder whether holding moral standards, practicing integrity in your life, in the life of your family, you ever wonder if it's really worth it? Especially when others succeed <laughs> by bending the rules or breaking the rules? Do you doubt that God even sees you in the midst of the world that we live in? If you've ever asked these questions, you need to think of Noah. You need to think of this man who lived in the craziness of a dark world, much like we do here today. And in the midst of the powerful, ambitious, self-centered, sinful people of that day and today, God sees you. And he sees you in the midst of the darkness. And, and Noah is charged with building this massive barge, as the story goes. In the middle, not just building a massive barge, but building a massive barge in the desert. All right? And so he's building this thing. It's, it's, it's kind of a boat, but not really. It's more like a big barge. And he's building this in the middle of the desert. And that is, that is an expression of Noah's faith here. But the Bible tells us something more. Noah had a godly attitude towards his work, a godly commitment towards his work. And we're going to break this down, this story, into three different sections. And the first one is this, Noah's sacred task. This wasn't just something that someone asks you to do. This is much more than that. This is, this is a calling when God speaks to you and you feel a burden about something that you know you need to follow through on, that you're willing to risk whatever other lifestyle you could have done. You're willing to risk and follow through with what God called you to do. See, Noah was an obedient man. And in Genesis 6.22, we read this. It tells us that he did all that God commanded him. Did all that God commanded him. And then Hebrews eleven seven. it says, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. See, building an ark was more than just 
being obedient. It was actually an act of worship. It was an act of worship to build this, and right from the beginning, God's fingerprints are all over this thing. It's, it's an incredible task and story, and in understanding this, it helps us to understand that each day of work that we put in, in our lifetime, can actually be an act of worship as well. In how you conduct yourself, whether you're a carpenter building a, a deck or, or something in a home, or, or, or you are a physician, or, or you are a teacher, or whatever it is, a day-by-day -day profession can actually be an act of worship. It can be a sacred task if God has led you into that. All can be done for the glory of God, even in the midst of societal sin. It's a sacred task he had. Uh, you can also see this as, a, as an enormous task. It's an enormous task that, that he has to bear here. And uh, it's incredible when you break it down. I mean, you look at the dimensions of this barge and uh, it's absolutely huge. I mean, in his day, there, there's, ab there's nothing like this thing. It is incredible. It measures 350 cubits by 30 cubits. Now a cubit, a Hebrew cubit, is between 18 and 20 inches. All right, so if we take the 18-inch version of the Hebrew cubit, we find that this thing is 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet with a capacity here of 150,000 cubic feet. It's about half the length of the Titanic. It's, it's, it's a big, big barge, a big thing that floats. Now, specifically, we see that God tells him it should have three decks. It has one door. It has one window. The ark is pretty much this, this waterproof barge, waterproof with kind of the same type of ingredient they use for asphalt. So this black, tarry substance would have been applied all around this thing to keep the water out. Now, there's no motor, obviously. There's not even a rudder. There's no keel. The barge, this huge barge, could have housed literally hundreds and thousands of species of animals. The thing is, is this wasn't built in a day or a week or a month or a year or 10 years. This, this took at least 80 years to build. In fact, it could have gone from 80 to 120 years to build this thing when you think about him and his sons who are building this. Only a few people working on this ark every day now, I, I tried to think about a construction project in our day that would be something similar, and, and I did some research on the parliament buildings. They're getting you know, refurbished and redone. It started in 2002, and they, they say it might take 50, 60 years to complete the task of refurbishing the parliament buildings. Literally, at, that, at its peak here, there was 5,000 people working on that in, in, in one time, all right? And so that, that's kind of mind-blowing when you think of a construction project that would take that long, but if you consider this being built out of wood by just a few people, 80 to 120 years to build this thing. It's an enormous task. But it's also a very lonely task. Incredibly lonely. Now, if you've ever felt lonely, and this year a lot of people have, Noah has you beat. He was the only righteous 
person on the planet. The only righteous person in all of earth. There, there is no church to attend. There's no life group. There's no youth group or, or kidville for his kids. There's, there, there's no pastor or counselor or there's no word of encouragement. There's no Christian friends. Noah's family stands alone in pursuing this task that God has given them, completely rejecting their culture. Noah does take time to warn his neighbors of impending doom that's about to take place. In fact, he preaches this message for a good 80 years at least, letting people know what is happening as they criticize him. This 80 to 120 years of building this thing and, and laughing at him as he builds this barge in the middle of the desert. He preaches to them. He lets them know, but not one person responded to his invitation. It's a lonely task. And yet he leaves a rich legacy. Now, how would you describe our culture? Wicked, depraved, rebellious, hard-hearted. If, if, if I were to describe it, I would say godless. And our challenge, like Noah, needs to be to live in our culture, whether wicked or godless, without spiritual compromise. How do you live upright in the midst of godlessness? You can do this in many ways. I mean, you can stand up for things and represent God in them. I mean, the, 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 the sanctity of all human life, whether the age or gender or before birth or, or you know, uh, people with disabilities or, you know, marginalized people and anything. Every human life is so valuable and so important to God and to care for and to respect and to stand up for the value of human life and that every life is made in the image of God. I mean, you could, you could refuse to tolerate racism in a conversation and uh, within organizations that you're a part of and whatever that is. I mean, you could, you could condemn abuse. I mean, we're, we're talking all kinds of abusive situations, whether it's physical or verbal or psychological or sexual abuse. Maybe it's living a lifestyle that represents the Bible and God well instead of society and peer pressure well. So we're called to navigate our culture as heirs of righteousness, upright. And so the question that Noah wants to leave us with here today as a superhero of the faith is this. Is your faith distinct enough? Does it feel like you are swimming upstream at times because of your burden, your conviction, and your worship of the Creator? If you find yourself swimming against that culture, it means that you have a spiritual backbone. Now remember, God sees you. And he will help you and he will carry you in the midst of a dark world. 
And so let's look at some of our next steps. Where do we go from here? The, the first thing is this. Has culture pressured, uh, caused you to fall into something that you shouldn't have? Maybe you've gone down a road that you do know is not healthy, it's not good. Can you turn that over to God? Can you, can you give it over to him? Can you live in a righteous way in a world that pressures you to live a different way? Number two, cling to God in the marathon of living for Jesus. Your task might take five years or 10 years or 120 years, right? And if he's called you to do it, stick with it. Stick with what he's called you to do. And number three, consider whether there's something that God has called you to do that you've been resisting. Take a step of faith and move forward in his call. Let me pray, Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we think about the hero of the faith. I mean, it's just such a well-known story, uh, the story of Noah. And uh, you, you, you uh, made a promise through the rainbow that you would, um, you would not destroy, obliterate the earth again. And sometimes it is, it is difficult for us to navigate this world. And God, we want to live righteously before you. We want to stand out and in the midst of, of pressure and, and what is right and wrong and, and God, that we would just cling to you in that. And Father, if there's tasks, if there's things that you've called us to do, God, we want to have the strength to do those things, to follow through in obedience with them. And so God, give us strength day by day. Go before us and that we could live up to loving you the best that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.